you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you can open it to the book of First Thessalonians. We will soon be reading from the end of the second chapter, around verse 17 to uh, around verse 5. I don't know why I said around verse 5. We will be reading to and through verse 5 in chapter 3. Um, it's a reminder that those chapter divisions uh, were put there by men, and not even just men, Frenchmen, so there are bound to be some errors in there. Uh, one, one guy uh, in particular who did that at the end, but uh, they are there for our help, but they are not always correct. So we will be blowing right through that third chapter division this morning. So it's helpful also in, in books like this where we are taking sort of shorter passages. We're not going over entire chapters, but you know, the past two weeks we've only spent time in about four verses each. So it's helpful to not get lost in the trees and, and exclude the forest to go back over what we've been talking about and where we have been. Paul has defended in chapter 2 his ministry. He's defended the what and the how and the why of his ministry, saying that there is a purpose to the way he has walked before the Thessalonians, that he has walked in line with the gospel because the gospel was free. Paul worked for free because the gospel was concrete in its demonstration of love from God to the Thessalonians. Paul, likewise, had this very concrete love among them. And just as Paul's life was shaped by that, so should the Thessalonians have been shaped by it. In other words, Paul, I think, would find it good and right to summarize that he is trying his best to be consistent with what he confesses and what he believes to be the truth and the way in which he lives his life. Consistency might be one of the best short phrases to use to sum up all of Christian ethics. Both the Sermon on the Mount and James 1 are really wonderful topics or wonderful scriptures to go to to see this. The Sermon on the Mount to Jesus is preaching that we should be consistent in the way that we live our lives. We should be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect, not necessarily being sinless, not necessarily being perfect in all of our ways, but certainly that we are consistent with what we speak and how we act. James 1 is big on this. James 1 also says that we should be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What he means by that is that we're not tossed by the winds. We don't turn one way one day and turn another way another day. That we don't boast in worldly things. We claim that we have a heavenly inheritance, so why worry about boasting over our money? James warns us not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word. That we are not men or women who look in a mirror and see the reflection and then leave as though we haven't seen that. Or that we claim to be religious and ignore the very things that our religion asks for us to be. In other words, be consistent. Today we have a, a view of that consistency that's at least in three things. First, in what we believe and we confess that we make a good confession before all. Secondly, then, in how we live. And thirdly, and importantly for today, in how we feel. And Paul has shown his perspective on the first two, that he is consistent. 
that he has come to them proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and the good news that is in Jesus Christ that the Thessalonians, although rebels and idolaters to God, who did not know him and were without hope in the world, nevertheless, because Christ is magnificently gracious and kind, he has taken their sin. He has paved the way for them to know a God that they have rebelled against. And because they can now know him, it is indeed good news. Jesus has put aside their sin. He has paid for it. And because of that, they are free to come and to know God and to be known by him. Paul, as we have seen, then lives in right accordance with that belief. But we need to see a third aspect of that, and that is not that Paul thinks it is his duty to go and to walk this way before the Thessalonians. Certainly, I would say that Paul thinks it's at least his duty, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't have this work before the Thessalonians. He doesn't live like he does before the Thessalonians or before the Philippians or before the Bereans or however Paul lives simply because he has a duty to do so. He does it because his affections are consistent with what he preaches and what he does. Let us read then these short verses and listen to the consistent affections of Paul beginning in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. This is the inerrant and infallible and sufficient word of our God. Paul's heart And his affections are consistently in line with the gospel. That Paul doesn't simply work among the Thessalonians because it is his duty, but he does these things amongst all of the churches because he loves the people whom the Lord loves. Consistently in this letter, he says that they were called and that they are beloved by God. They are brothers, back in verse 4, loved by God. And so if they are loved by God, then Paul ought to love them as well. And he shows that his affections are right and consistent with what he preaches. So first thing I would like to show to you this morning is, Paul's heart. Simply Paul's heart. The first two verses of our passage this morning are some of the most emphatic statements that Paul makes about his heart for people in a church. This is equaled almost nowhere else. 1 Corinthians 13 is a lovely passage about the importance and the center of love in our relationships with one another. 
that no matter what kind of gifts you might be given, there's nothing greater than love. Our friend Doug is preaching that or has already preached it about 12 hours ago as he is over in China. He preached that just this morning. It might be one of the most poetic and beautiful passages on love ever written. This passage is not so much beautiful. It's less about poetry and more just about the brute force of Paul's love for them. There's a rawness to it. He says first that we were torn away from you. Paul's not one to say, well, listen, there was some difficulty there in Thessalonica and we decided that it would be better if our ministry went on its way. Sorry, guys, but we kind of had to go. He says, no, we were torn away from you. The presence of these Jewish antagonists before us made us have to leave you. The word has an incredible affect to it that we lose, frankly, when we say that we were torn away from you. In English, we have words that describe people who have lost a wife or a husband. It's a widower or a widow. For children who have lost their parents, we call them orphans. We don't have a strong word for parents who lose all of their children. In Greek, that word is exactly the same for parents, uh, for children who lose their parents. It's orphaned. And Paul here is saying that we were orphaned from you, that we were ripped away from you, that we had to move on. Our children were taken from us. The Jews, those who were antagonistic to the gospel, forced him to be separated from his children. He says very clearly that he was separated from them in person, not in heart. That his heart always longed for them. That he loved them as his children. It's clear that this is not meant to be sort of an an at-place way of of saying, well, well, you know, it doesn't matter that I'm not there. At least I hold you in my heart. It's not like Celine Dion is playing in the background, my heart will go on. Rather, what Paul is saying is that's a cheap replacement. It's not good enough. We don't want to be separated from you in person just to have my heart filled with longing for you. He wants to see them, he says, face to face. And so he uses three terms, back to back, to back to talk about how much he longed to come and see them. He says, we endeavored eagerly with great desire. It's not a small amount of affection there. He is trebling, not doubling, but trebling down on his desire to come and see them again and again and again. He said, we did everything we could to get back to see you. We wanted to, we tried to, we put all of our effort into it, but we couldn't. Satan had hindered us. Satan kept him from doing what he wanted. This passage is dripping with his desire to be present with the Thessalonians because he loves them and he cares for them and he simply can't be. When I was a senior in high school, I was gifted for Christmas a dog. A dog was a black lab and she came to me as a little puppy and she grew fast. She was about 120 pounds at full weight and that 120 pounds was not raw beastly animal. Most of it was just pure fat. She was fur, fat, and bark pretty much all. And she had this very deep growl, but if you ever entered into our house, there was no way that she was ever going to attack you. If she ever saw a stranger enter into her little space, she ran for the hills. She was, she was quite a coward, that tippy. We had a wire line that ran from our cemented-in basketball pole out to our clothesline about 20 yards, and we had a dog leash on that. And there was one day 
that a dog wandered into our yard and Tippy saw her before she had really gotten used to this little setup. And I was watching her and I knew what was going to happen as soon as she took off. She didn't actually know where the end of that line was. And she was running full bore. It looked like an offensive lineman running without a shirt on. There was stuff moving in ways that should not be moving. And she hit the end of that wire and all four legs at one point in time were pointed straight up. And she landed made no difference. She got up and she made a beeline for that. She wasn't trying to hurt the other dog. She just wanted to see the other dog. She didn't get around other dogs much. And so she was just excited. That is precisely what Paul looks like. He is straining on the end of that leash. He wants, more than anything, to get back to Thessalonica. He wants to see the Thessalonians. Like a dog on the end of a leash, when he wants to go somewhere, he is straining with all of his might. He says, I earnestly and eagerly desired to get there. Now, how it is that Satan hindered him, we don't know. It could very well be that he sent word of this back with Timothy, talking about all of the problems that he had had in coming back here. Maybe Timothy clarified this for him. It's amazing that Paul says this and doesn't clarify it, but he doesn't. And you can read all kinds of descriptions as to what this is supposed to be in, in commentaries. We have no idea what it's supposed to be. We don't know what this looks like. We don't know how this is different than God hindering him, how Paul knew the difference between the two. But we know this. Paul longed to see them. He wanted with all of his heart to get back to talk with them, to make sure that he could move them further in the faith so that he could do precisely what he has already said he wanted to do, to exhort them and to encourage them to walk in a manner worthy of God. But he hasn't been able to. When he says, I wanted to see you face to face, we shouldn't read that and think, ah, if only he had FaceTime or if only he had Messenger or if only he had Zoom, then he could have accomplished his goal. His goal was not to be able to look at them in their face. I looked, you know, even as I said, Doug is preaching halfway across the world. We talked not too many days ago, face to face, so to speak. But that's not what Paul's getting at. When he says face to face, he means in their presence. It's not a second sort of delayed interaction between them. It's not using technology to have this sort of comfort. What he wants is he wants to be with them. He wants to hug them, to care for them, to be in their presence. God gives us things, and we do well to consider why God has given us those things. I was talking with uh, Rick just the other day, and we had mentioned uh, how COVID has worked in the life of this church in various and sundry ways uh, to be a help during this time. Um, Those things and many of those things are secondary, so we're not going to get into those. But one of the things I hope that COVID has done for us is given us a, a desire all the more to be present with one another without all this little space in between us. We used to be packed like sardines in here, and we're trying to get away from that for good reason, but there's something kind about that. There's something good about being physically present with one another. There's something right about wanting and desiring a physical presence with one another that for a time we weren't able to do. And the idea is not that that should become our new normal. The idea is that that should become something abhorrent to us, that having to go through that should drive us all the more back to be present with one another. I read an article by somebody who is supposedly a church leader, who is a pastor. He wrote this online. He's got a very large following. 
As you settle into old patterns, this is talking like what church is going to look like post-COVID. It says, as you settle into old patterns, all your energy will go back into in-person ministry. And don't get me wrong, a lot of energy, I'm, I can't not read this sarcastically. I don't think he means it this way, but sorry. And don't get me wrong, a lot of energy, passion, prayer, and effort belong in in-person ministry. I mean, come on, don't get me wrong, a lot of energy should be involved in in-person ministry. Like all of it. Okay. The gathered church is here to stay. Thank God you agree. Eventually, you'll look up and realize you haven't posted much to Instagram or Facebook recently and that your teams, not your church, but your teams, are so busy they haven't really followed up on comments online or checked out who's new. Online church will become an add-on again, something you tag onto the most tech-savvy person's job description, hoping he or she will get to it if they have time, which they seldom do. Then he spaces this out to make one line a paragraph, which is the most annoying thing in reading anything online. He says, and you'll completely miss the future. (laughs) And in the same way, remote work will become the new normal for many people in the wider economy. Online church might become a default option for many people. Hating that doesn't make it go away. So his idea is, obviously, be on Instagram and be on Facebook. Really be working hard at, at ministering to people online. Don't allow the online presence that you've built up to just sort of peter out and go away. And I'm, I'm actually not wholly against that. I think that for the churches that have done that, they, they ought to incorporate something like that. But my main reaction to that is kind of like, it's just, it's not what church is. Literally, the word church means to gather together. You, you don't have church unless you gather. I'll tell you exactly how serious we take this. We haven't taken the Lord's Supper since we've come back. Let me be very clear as to why we haven't done that. It's not because we don't want to. It's not because we don't long to. It's because as long as there are people sitting in the back watching this, our church is not actually gathered together. Even separated by that hallway, and it's just a hallway, It's a right-hand turn. That's all it is. Even being separated by that means that we are not gathered together fully and truly. To think that you can have authentic community in virtual reality means you're not paying attention to that word virtual. You can't have anything authentic virtually. This is the reason why we ought to be driven back together again. We should have pressed into our desire fellowship with one another. We should long to be with people who we like and who we don't like. And this is the real problem with churches that want to do online ministry, is that they are never going to press people to actually love people they don't like. Because so long as you are online, you can always avoid the people you don't like. You know what you can't do in a room this large? Avoid the people you don't like. That's good for us. Because it trains us to love one another. It trains us to be peaceable with one another. It trains for us to be patient with one another. It trains us to honestly seek out and to know one another so that we can understand why we don't like one another and we can move beyond it in the blood of Christ. People like to go online because they don't have to deal with people they like or they don't like. We can't afford to have that in the church. Online church and online things provide a fake escape where there ought to be no escape. 
We need to be present with one another to truly love one another, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to provide care and aid to those who are in need. You cannot really do that online. And more than that, we should be willing to part with what is dear for us to get those things. Paul, twice, talks about when I could bear it no more. If you ever talk to a missionary, ask them, what is the most difficult thing about being out in the world? And it's not that the culture that they're embedded in is so terribly much different. It's typically not that. It's typically not that the the work is really, really hard and they weren't prepared for that. Sometimes it is, but not always. It is the lack of fellowship and teams out on the field. It is the fact that they at times feel incredibly isolated and alone. And having people there working as a team is an incredibly helpful part. Timothy was incredibly helpful to Paul. He held an incredibly special place in Paul's heart. Go back and read First and Second Timothy. Paul loves this man dearly. And even when they were on the mission field and things were not going all that well for Paul, he says there came a point when I couldn't bear it. So I sent Timothy to you. Paul's heart is to be present with the people of God. We require so little to be here. It doesn't take much for us to be here. And I understand that there are people who during this time can't be physically present with us. I get that. But there are also many of us who do not take the opportunity to grasp at what is given to us with both hands. You get to be present with believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, having them work with you and work on you as you work on them to make everything as Christ wants it to be, to build up the body of Christ into the fullness of maturity. And what does it require out of you on Sundays? A little less sleep and a little bit of drive time. Let us have Paul's heart. But secondly, let us have Paul's hope. Verses 19 and 20 are very Pauline in one sense. So you get the sense that it sounds like Paul. It's got a ring of truth to Paul. Paul calls the Philippians his crown and glory in Philippians 4.1, so it seems like it. But at the same time, the way he words this doesn't seem quite right. It seems like we're only supposed to boast and hope and glory in Christ, right? I mean, doesn't Paul say anything you do, do unto the glory of God in 1 Corinthians 10.31? In 1 Corinthians 1.31, he says, anyone who boasts ought to boast in the Lord. And he quotes there Jeremiah 9, which says this, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You are to boast in me. You are to boast in your knowledge of me. And Paul does that elsewhere. But here, he talks about his hope and his joy and his crown of boasting before the Lord. Not even like in men, but before God Almighty. In the presence of Christ's coming are the Thessalonians. Why does Paul say this? I think these three things help to interpret one another. They give a further understanding of one another. So let's look at hope and joy and crown of boasting sort of in order. 
When Paul uses the word hope, he doesn't use it like most of us use the word hope, like I hope that there's football in the fall. That is a wish and a desire, but that is completely without any certainty that there will actually be that in the fall. Or I hope it's cooler out tomorrow, which is a fool's hope because it's not going to be. So when Paul says things like I hope, and he means something that is almost certain to happen, if not certain to happen, it just hasn't happened yet which is not the way that we use the word hope. There is really no better English word to use for this, but this is kind of what he means. So when you go back to something like Colossians 1, 4 and 5, Paul says this, We heard of your faith, that is the Colossians' faith, in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because, so what is their faith based on? What is the love they're based on? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So there is a certainty of something in heaven. What is that? It's no less than the hope of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. That is not like an possibility in Paul's mind. It's not like we got like a 58% chance of that happening. No, he, he is certain that that is going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. We haven't gotten to heaven. But these Thessalonians were somehow Paul's future They were the basis of his hope before the Lord Jesus Christ. Question is hope for what? The second word there is joy. They are his joy. Joy here is not so much an inner disposition, but it is more of the act of rejoicing before the Lord God. Douglas Fee writes this, It is less about how one feels and more about what one does in the presence of God. One rejoices in the Lord. It is a manifestation of an inner feeling. When he says, I have joy, he means that it is demonstrated in some way. And the Thessalonians are the demonstration of his joy. They are his rejoicing. What does that even mean? Lastly, it's crown of boasting. It's actually a very literal way to translate the Greek, but it likely is not an actual crown of boasting. It is sort of a laurel wreath. Typically, these are the victor's crowns that are given to athletes after they participate. It is something that shows that they have accomplished what they've set out to do, that they are victors and they are winners. And I think that this is probably the most important way for us to see what Paul's getting at here. Because Christ has given him something to do. Christ has appointed a topic and a a mission for Paul to be on. Back in Acts chapter 9, even as we talked last week after Stephen makes his his speech before those in the temple, they pick up stones to stone him and Paul is there. And Paul's murderous and venomous rampage against the church leads him to even go up to Damascus to travel all that way to throw Christians into prison because he hates Christians. And on the way, the Lord Jesus disrupts him and calls him into fellowship with him. And then the Lord Jesus blinds him and goes to Ananias and says, Ananias, you got to go heal Paul. And Ananias, Lord love him, says, Lord, I don't know if you know about this Paul, but let me inform you. This Paul is a pretty horrible guy. He isn't really helping the church any. And Jesus says to him, yeah, yeah, I I know, but I will show you what I will do with Paul. Paul says this, or the book of Acts says this, the Lord says to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul's been given a mission 
The question is, if this is now the calling on his life, to be one who goes forward to preach the Lord Jesus Christ, to uphold his name before kings and before the Gentiles and before the children of Israel, how do we know if Paul is doing that? What is the proof that that was a calling on his life, that he has been faithful to Jesus Christ for it? Paul uses this metaphor in other places, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. And it's clear that Paul thinks that he has run well. In 2 Timothy, at the very end of his life in chapter 4, he says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Paul thinks that he has run well enough to receive the crown. How will he know he's run well enough to receive the crown? Because before him, in the presence of Christ, there will appear the Thessalonians. And one would understand others as well, the Philippians, the Corinthians. But those people that Paul has witnessed to faithfully about the work of Jesus Christ, who he has lived before faithfully through the work of Jesus Christ, that they would be his crown and his boasting because he will know that I have done what Jesus Christ has put me here to do strictly because before you stands the fruit of my labor. They will be a declaration of Paul's rejoicing in Christ. They will be a declaration of Paul doing the very thing that Christ has put him on earth to do. Friend, what is it in your life? And I hope that you've asked yourself this question. But what is it in your life where God will look at you and say, hey, that is well done, my good and faithful servant. What is it that you have done that you will receive that applaud for? I'm not even saying that he's going to save you because of that work. Please understand, that's not what I'm saying. But after being saved, after having the Spirit of Christ work in you, wanting to be faithful to Jesus, for what things is Christ going to look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant? And certainly it could be your honesty in business dealings, and it could be your philanthropic work. It could be that you were a nice neighbor. It could be that you treated your dog well. But Christ has given you specific commands as to how you are to interact with people in the church, that you are to do good, especially to those of the household of faith, that you are to love one another, even as Christ has loved us that we are to bear with one another's burdens, that we are to do the things that a church that comes together ought to do. Paul looked at the people around him and said that they are going to be my joy and my crown of boasting and my glory. Even now, he says, you are our glory and joy. That should be not those other things that you have done. Those things for you, likewise, should be the people of this church the people that you have covenanted with to help mature them in the faith, to be matured by in the faith, to press and exhort and encourage one another in the faith so that the, the body of Christ might gain full maturity. That should be the very thing that you point to and say, that is my crown and my joy and my glory. That is the very thing that demonstrates that I have been faithful to Christ all these years. Let your hope be the same as Paul's hope. And lastly, I want to point out to you Paul's honesty. Coming in Paul's wake was a storm. Paul did not 
stand before them with the storm raging behind him and say, there's nothing to see here. Everything's going to be all right. Just plow forward and God will take care of the rest. Rather, he tells them how he explained from the very moment that he stood up, that even as that storm followed him, that storm was coming for them. Notice what he says here. You yourselves know that we, and that we is not Paul and Silvanus and Timothy only, that we as we as in all believers are destined for this. We were destined for it. And what's more, he says, we, you know that we were destined for this, not because they read it in scripture, not because they figured it out, but because when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand. He didn't just say it once, like low under his voice. Jesus Christ is going to give you immense riches and glory. And you might suffer a little bit. So I'll see you later. You know, I'll go my way. And we'll be on, you know, so I, I, you can't say I didn't say it. You know, it's there. And he says, we, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, just as you know. He was quite honest and open with them about this. Now, I, I'm not much of a salesman. I've never really had to do that. But I would imagine if Paul was this honest in his tent-making business, he probably wasn't all that great at it. If he had to talk about his tents the way he talks about faith in Christ. Listen, you go by my tent. Yeah, it might work for a while, but really it's shoddy quality. I don't sew very well, and if it rains, you're in trouble. Um, it's really hard to pack up, but uh, no, no. Do I use it? No, I wouldn't use it. No, no. I mean, he's just so terribly clear with them. He says, listen, there is coming to you affliction. Every week, I read Paul, and I think, how, how can people who believe in the prosperity gospel ever read through anything that Paul writes and think that what Jesus has come to do is to make their way happy and skippy? Now, in the end, that's true. There's peace, there's comfort, there's joy, there's love, there's happiness. There's all of those things, but all of those things occur in this bubble of affliction and trouble and suffering. And Paul says very clearly, that is what we promise to you. He's just terribly honest with them because he loves them. He knows that it's coming. He knows that it's going to follow him. He knows that it's coming for them. He knows that it's going to strike them. And so how much would he have to hate those people to only promise them good things when he knows that there is trouble coming. But instead, because he loves them, because he cares for them, he tells them exactly what's coming. And given the fact that he's already talked about the fact that, that Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come, you can kind of make the conclusion, because he says you were destined for this, that you go from the frying pan to the fryer that you can either be skipping out on the wrath of God and receive the wrath of the world, or you can skip out on the wrath of the world and get the wrath of God, but you've got to have one. You've got to have one. You will suffer affliction. You will suffer trials and difficulties. You will lose friends. You will antagonize people. There will be people who will hate you for what you stand up for and what you agree with. You should know, though, that that is a factor of the world and not a factor of the subset of the world. So that a lot of evangelical Christians believe that it's the left in the country who's out to get you. And I have no doubt that you are correct. 
But make sure that you understand. Please be sure that you understand this. While the left might abuse you, the right wants to use you. They're not here to do what you want them to do. They are here to tell you what you want to hear, to use you for your votes and power. And anyone who puts hope in political parties is putting a fool's hope on anything. And if the past week and the past couple of Supreme Court decisions hasn't made that blindingly obvious, the word of God ought to. Because those political, and I'm not talking about each individual in those political parties, people on the left and people on the right, there are people everywhere who are honest with what they believe and why they believe it, and they're not scoundrels. Truly believe that. But I don't believe that about the parties. And I don't believe that about things in the world in general. You are simply a means to an end for both parties. One to trample, one to use as a step. But that's all you are. So long as you identify with them, you'll be both a fool and be put in a dangerous position. The world, in whatever form it takes, is not your friend, and it doesn't seek your good, and it doesn't care about what you care about. There is one who does. There is one who cares about what you ought to care about, who tells you and leads you and shows you what you ought to care about. And that is the Spirit of God working in the church. And we ought to use the political parties to attain good ends. I fear, however, that it's the other way around. But not only that, Paul is honest about his anxiety in the churches. He's not only honest with them about the great afflictions and sufferings and persecutions that are coming to them, but about his anxiety in the churches. I'm also afraid that so many people, especially people who believe as we believe, hide their affection, or rather hide their lack of affection for other people behind the sovereignty of God. And we pretend like our not caring is due to our theological beliefs. And somehow, because Paul says that God is sovereign over all things and that he works in his people how he wishes, that we can simply leave people in their sin, that we don't have to be anxious or worried or concerned about them. And therefore, because we're not anxious or worried or concerned about them, it's simply because we believe that God is sovereign. Let me tell you, sometimes you're not anxious or worried or concerned about people because you don't actually love them and it has nothing to do with the sovereignty of God. Because Paul is clearly concerned about these people. To clarify sort of the timeline, remember that Paul has heard back from Timothy. So when we talked last week about them loving the word of God and receiving this word that was about God and was from God as the word of God, and that itself was the very thing that made them stick through their afflictions, Paul has already heard back from Timothy about them. But it's clear that when Paul was driven out after just a handful of weeks of ministry, that he was fretful for them. This is the thing that's driving him to get back. Notice he doesn't just send Timothy back so that he might hear a good word about them, so that he might tell them that he loves them. He sends him back because, he says, I wanted to establish and exhort you in your faith. He was worried that they were going to lose their faith. He was worried that the tempter was going to tempt you out of the faith and that their labor there would be in vain. Paul was anxious and concerned about them. The same Paul who says that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will finish it and bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. 
He is certain about the sovereignty of God. That same Paul can also go through a litany of trials that he's been through. The whippings, the beatings, the stonings, the embarrassments, the shipwrecks, all of the difficulties that he goes through. And quite amazingly, at the end of all of that, which is horrific in 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11.28, he can even say this, and apart from those other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul cares about these churches. And that, that word anxiety is a really good word to use. He's worried. He's anxious about them. This guy who believes fully, better than you do, in the sovereignty of God, looks at these people and says, I'm concerned for their souls. Don't be like so many who hide their sort of dispassionate position, who aren't truly affectionate for the people of God behind sovereign work amongst them. Like the gathering with William Carey tells those Baptists, I want to go to India. I feel like God's calling me to go to India. Whomever it was, we don't really know who it was, stands up and says, hey, young man, when God is pleased to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. That is a lack of love hiding behind the sovereignty of God. We ought to be both theologically aware and honest about our anxiety for other people. We ought to worry about the spiritual health of the people around us. We ought to worry about the nature of what people in this church are doing and be concerned about it enough to call them out and to be honest with them about it. While at the same time saying that I'm sure that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We ought to be faithful to them and to God giving a good example of what it means to live out this gospel consistently, day and night, warning, exhorting, admonishing, encouraging, doing everything possible. And we do that because we stand on God's word that he will indeed do these things. What are Christians supposed to do in times like these? I mean, this is not an easy day in which to live. We face lawlessness in many cities, a leadership in our country on a national level, in the Senate and Congress and other places is facile and bankrupt. You have mob mentalities everywhere, whether it's online or actual mobs. There's injustice writ large throughout our laws and the way that they treat the poor, the way they treat those who are least in our country. We have a political system that's broken by money and power. And frankly, a nation, from individual to individual, who refuses to listen to anyone who thinks differently than they do on anything. I'm not sure if many people listen to our sermons during times like these, where we have the 4th of July yesterday, or Mother's Day or Father's Day, or at some other time when a crisis or a celebration or any of these things come to us, 
and think, I, I wonder why they don't do anything special for that. I mean, why not have a 4th of July sermon on July 5th? But nevertheless, why not, why not do that? Why not single out this day as a day of God's providence over this country, which there is a tremendous amount of providence and good that he has poured over this country? Even if we are to point out the many wrongs that we must right and set straight, why just keep going with what we're doing? To be honest with you, it's simply this. That this country, in the end of all things, needs the gospel. Before the gospel to ring out, truly, in purity, with goodness, the gospel needs people to walk faithfully before God. And it doesn't just need people in general to walk faithfully before God. It needs the church to be the church. It needs the universal church to be the universal church, and that means that it needs the local church to be the local church, which means it needs you to walk in a manner that is worthy of God. So if you truly love America, you need to be more concerned for the church to be the church than for anything that's actually happening in the public square. Because that is the hope for the gospel to be truly understood and to ring out amongst this country. To make a better secular country is a waste of your time. What is best for America is that you, Christian, be faithful, be consistent in your confession, in your life, and in your affection. Do this for the glory of God. Do it for the good of your brothers and sisters in this church. And do it for America because it needs the gospel. And it needs the gospel by the only thing that holds the gospel. And that is you and that is me. We go out, we follow the example set by Paul that our confession of Jesus Christ and his gospel means something about how we live and about how we love. We do this and we simply entrust that Christ will build his church and that is all we need. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank you for the wonder of your work in us. You've taken a people who were not a people, who have been scattered across the globe from different tribes and tongues and nations and languages, and you have forged us into a people for your own glory, a nation of priests, that we might proclaim your excellencies to the world. May we be complete before you, consistent in every area of our lives, always living honestly and purely before you, formed and fashioned by your word. Give us wisdom, grace, and light for this journey. We pray these things before you for our good and for your glory. Amen.